taking the time to, um, to join this webinar today. Um, I hope everyone is doing well and is staying healthy and safe at home. And um, I know everyone is a little stressed with trying to figure out how an immigration to actually um, prepare cases, file cases uh, during this sort of remote work lifestyle now. But I'm hoping at the end of this, um, our webinar, you guys have some real takeaways that you can actually use when preparing your cap cases or, you know, other H-1B ports or extensions. But we thought this would be a timely webinar since obviously most of you now have a good handle on uh, all of your cap cases for the year and have clearly probably started prepping most of them, but um, maybe you have a few stragglers that you're trying to decide how to best classify and move forward because they're a little tricky. So hopefully this is helpful for you. Um, today's agenda, um, as you can kind of see, is we're going to talk about a little background information about specialty occupation and analysis and what goes into it because I'm not quite sure, being a, a webinar, how, what everyone's level is. Are we all beginner attorneys here, dabbling, potentially this is your first H, or seasoned veterans? So hopefully it kind of covers the gamut for everybody, but I did want to provide a little background information as a jumping off point. And then we're going to do a walkthrough analysis of two different sample kind of tricky H's. One in the science, you know, sort of sphere as a computational biologist, and then one of the uh, more regular ones you might see is like a market research analyst. Um, so then I'm going to provide some 10 tips, like practical tips uh, of how to work your way through a case, and then um, hopefully have some time at the end for a little Q&A. And at the very end, you'll notice a slide of sample, sample documents. I, I always think it's helpful if you get to leave a presentation, not just with a PowerPoint, but maybe some actual documentation that you can, you know, borrow from. So you're not reinventing the wheel when you're either prepping a case or working on a request for evidence. So um, the BBA did let me know that they can email all the participants uh, the PDFs of those samples so that you can actually have something to look at with some language that maybe you can, you know, use as a jumping off point or just, you know, use entirely. So, um, so let's break it down. This is just a, a, from you, a few facts and figures, um, let's, you know, of what actually um, are the stats for H-1Bs and how many RFEs, how many denials we're getting. And so um, these is over the last couple years from 2017 to the present. And I sort of break it down that, um, you know, approved, you know, we've gone from about a 95.7 approval rating uh, down to, you know, um, an 84 without an RFE and a 65% with an RFE. So that's, um, you know, that's sort of where we are with stats. Obviously, we've increased the number of requests for evidence by about 40, 45%. And we've gone from, you know, the denial rate has jumped up, you know, roughly 20% these days. And so it's not the cookie cutter H's that are getting the requests for evidence and the denials. You know, the standard, you know, you have an accountant with an accounting degree, or you have a software developer with a computer science degree. We all know those work. Those are not elusive. Those are very linear, straightforward arguments. So today we're going to take a look at, in this sort of multidisciplinary world, 
what types of H's, you know, you have to look out for and really what's the analysis that goes behind it. Because I used to get an H1B and I remember 10 years ago doing very little analysis uh, on picking the SOC code, to be honest, or uh, looking at the Outlook Occupation Handbook. Like, I rarely ever did I go to it. Now it's on my favorites, probably my top three favorites. And I go to it for every H-1B, even if it's an H that I know what the Outlook Handbook says, sometimes they update it. And so I just remind myself because I prep for a request for evidence before I even pick an SOC code. I start to think in my head, what are the criteria that I'm gonna have to try to prove at an RFE stage. So speaking of, that leads us into, well, what is, what are the criteria? Um, and again, this was something when I first started, I don't even wanna say how many years ago, uh, I rarely even looked at what the criteria for an H-1B specialty occupation was. You know, I vaguely had, you know, knew what they were, but I didn't get into the nitty gritties or parse out words or really think about it. But now I have it at the forefront of my mind, every single H, even if I think if it's a simple one. And so, you know, obviously we know the general definition of specialty occupation is that it's a body of highly specialized knowledge, right? And, and they're really, without changing the regulations or the definition, the uh, current administration has decided to really narrow that. And take it from a you know from fields of study down to really a field of study so if there's anything in um the onet or anything particularly in the occupational outlook handbook the ooh that alludes to the fact that there are multiple fields that could uh qualify someone for this occupation, you've got a request for evidence almost, you know, easily 50% of the time, if not every time. So that's really what you're going to look for. If this is sort of, you're just delving into this um, H1B or you've only done a handful of them, that is really going to be your Bible for H's these days is the OOH. So that's the first place I look for anything. For any H, that's my starting and jumping off point. Um, so let's also then recap what is, what are the four criteria? So for this, it is, you know, obviously a baccalaureate or higher degree or its equivalent is normally the minimum requirement. And again, like I said, what does the OOH say? That's going to be your Bible for number one, in my opinion. Number two is the degree requirement is common to the industry in parallel positions among similar organizations or in the alternative, an employer must show that the particular position is so complex or unique, it must be performed by someone with a bachelor's degree. To be honest, I have seen so many RFEs and then sample denials of cases where if you focus on the first half of that criteria, uh, the common to the industry one, that uh, they must be in parallel positions among similar organizations, that is too many variables and too subjective. Uh, in my opinion, to try to argue these days because the immigration officer could easily ding on one of them. They could easily say it's not a parallel position, the duties aren't exactly the same, and it's not a similar organization. They'll find some difference between your company and the job ad you found on Monster with the different company. So I always try to argue in the alternative, the job is complex or unique because yes, it is still subjective, but there's a lot more stuff you can give, and I'll kind of go into samples uh, to, to bolster that argument and less for immigration to sort of nitpick on. 
Um, so the next one is employer normally requires the degree or its equivalent. That's great. To be honest, when it's a, a tricky H, I find that this is kind of the only position <laughs> at the company, or there's one or two other employees who have it, and they certainly uh, don't have the same degree. You know, they'll, they might have a marketing or market research or a sales job, but they also have some quirky degree that doesn't match, or you wouldn't be in this situation to begin with. So that's one in the back of my head I can rarely, rarely use these days. And then the nature of the specific duties are so specialized and complex that knowledge is required. That is kind of a go-to one. So it's a lot of times uh, I end up at an RFE stage only trying to prove three. Number one, the OOH. I either use the OOH in my favor or say it shouldn't be actually used. And just depending on what it says. And I'll show you how to argue both a little later on. Um, that it's uh, the job is uh, position is complex or unique and on that I talk more about the company and how it fits in the industry and what sets that company apart so that it makes the job itself so unique so that has a lot more information about the company um, and the position within the you know not the specific job duties that is what I hold for the the fourth prong is that the duties are so specialized and complex and so I give a lot of evidence about the particular job duties so now that we have sort of an overflow of you know, reminder of what to keep in our head as we uh, analyze and how, um, what criteria that we might actually need to prove either an initial filing or just save it all for an RFE. Um, now that we, you kind of assess which ones you might prove, let's actually look into some other um, documentation or sources, I guess you should say, that you should look at from the start. Again, the Bible for me is the Occupational Outlook Handbook. In these days, to be honest, there is, there is case law out there that actually is in our favor, saying that the OOH was not designed for this purpose and that immigration is sort of, you know, latching on to using it, but improperly. So if the OOH doesn't work into your favor, I have some case law later on that kind of says um, that you can cite that says, you know, you really shouldn't be using this at all. So um, that's not what it was designed for. Um, but if the OOH is in your favor, um, then there are certainly, you know, immigration loves to use it. So throw it right back at them and, uh, and use it to your advantage. So as you can see, there's sample OH entries. I just picked operations research analysts. That's one that loves to get dinged. Um, and while this summary page is nice, that's not really what immigration is looking for per se. A lot of them do say bachelor's degree and that's great. But immigration now is more focused on how do you become one? So there's a different page for that that you got to make sure that you click on and that you read very carefully um, because that's going to be really important. Oh, I went a little too fast. So I highlighted the section for operations research analyst. This is what makes it so vague and so ripe for a request for evidence. And that is, although some schools offer a bachelor's or advanced degree in operations research, some analysts need degrees in technical or quantitative fields such as engineering, computer science, analytics, or math. Right there you have about four or five different degrees listed. Immigration is going to say that is not a specialty occupation. Even though in the real world, anyone with that skill set could probably do that job. And some of it might depend on the particular employer and what the actual, uh, what their market, you know, what they're doing um, in that field or in that space. So, that right there, anyone who reads that in the OH will probably say these days, yep, I'm going to get an RFE. How do I prep for that? So um, 
that sort of leads me to these are other sample frequently challenged ones that we've seen uh, recently. And the main reason is leading to that. Why? Why are those particular categories dinged? Well, it's either one, there's bad OOH data. So like medical scientists, it basically says you can have a degree in biology, chemistry, or related fields. That's too broad. Market research analysts can have a degree in stats, math, computer science, or marketing, but also administ uh, business administration, social sciences, and communications. That's basically just, they're just throwing in the you know, kitchen sink of degree fields. Management analysts, again, business management, economics, accounting, finance, marketing, psychology, uh, computer and information systems. So I call that bad OH data because the, it's the, the OH, it's gonna hurt your case. And immigration is gonna latch onto that. They're gonna cite it in their RFE and say that can't possibly be a specialty occupation. So in, in these cases, you'll actually use the OH, um, the argument and the case law to say it was not designed for an H-1B or that purpose. So don't use it in, in making your analysis. Um, but then what's the, what is the alternative? No OH data at all. The OH, again, since it wasn't designed for the H, doesn't contain all of the SOC codes that are in the ONET. So for example, biostatistician, biological scientists, statistical assistants, uh, bioinformatic technicians, those are just samples of fields that don't even exist in the OH. And if they don't exist in the OH, again, expect an RFE. So it, that kind of goes back to maybe your analysis at the beginning of when you're picking an SOC code. If it's, if it's not in the OH at all, do you want to use that SOC code? Are you up for a challenge? Uh, sometimes there's just no way around it. Uh, but sometimes maybe there are. Maybe you're deciding between two categories and, and you're kind of borderline. The case sort of, or the job duties sort of are across two SOC codes. Well, maybe pick the one at, at least, you know, to be honest, I've met some lawyers who love to use, um, use the code when there's no OH because in their mind, well, then immigration can't use it against me, whatever it says. Uh, and some instead would rather use something with OOH and then try to argue that it shouldn't, you know, the fact that the OOH doesn't narrow it to one specific field that just happens to match your degree, you know, is fine. It shouldn't be used against them. So, you know, to be honest, it's sort of split in talking to other attorneys of um, whether to pick, a, pick one that has data in the OOH or one that doesn't have it at all. Uh, but just be prepared. So when I see that it has bad data or no OH at data, I actually tell my clients. I actually say just as a heads up, this is what we're up against. So that when we do get an RFE, they're not shocked by it. So I sort of uh, lay the expectations for them very early on. Um, and, and this day and age, I let them in on my thought process about this and my analysis way more than I ever used to, just so that they can see that there wasn't a great job to begin with. You know, we're sort of stuck with this and we'll do our best uh, to avoid a request for evidence, but in the end we might not be able to. So just hunker down and be ready for it. So let's do two little walkthrough analysis of two cases. These are two samples I'll sort of keep reverting back to when we get into our tips of um, later on in, in the webinar. So the first one is a computational biologist. Um, for this one, the person had a degree in uh, chemistry. 
to be a computational biologist. So right there, then and there, you know, you're thinking, oh my gosh, immigration is just going to have a, a hard time wrapping their head that, around that. That you know, in their mind, maybe this is a degree that should have a, or a field. Um, the field of study should be biology or something more related to that. Uh, so we put the degree requirement in the in the letter as a PhD in theoretical chemistry, because this particular company does a lot of uh, genetic research. So that's sort of what industry that they're in. So we selected the SOC code as biological scientists all over, all other. And now on the LCAs, you can actually select the subcode, which is really helpful. Before they went to the flag system, you couldn't. And we'd have to point it out in a support letter that says, well, it's not just biological scientists, although we feel that the job is closely related to bioinformatics scientists. And we'd have to put that explanation in there. Um, to be honest, sometimes we still do, just because we, you know, we have that boilerplate language. And just to make sure they can, they note it and they notice that subcategory on the LCA. But really what we were desiring for the SOC was the subcategory of bioinformatics scientist. And if you, you know, it really does closely align with computational biologists, uh, the job duties. In the OH, there's no entry, uh, entry at all. There's no, you know, uh, uh, there's no entry in the OH so that there's nothing, at least you don't have to, you know, go against the OH saying that a degree in biology is what is common. So then, we got an RFE on it, of course. And so uh, when I had done this presentation before, I have done it before, I had actually worked with uh, another wonderful speaker who works at the Broad Institute. And so these are her sort of, we redacted it, but her sort of sample documents. So you'll sort of see that. This was her part of the presentation. Um, so you'll see that reference there. But as you can see in the RFE, um, all the documentation that they included under exhibit, the different exhibits, um, to sort of make their arguments that it meets at least one of the specialty occupation criteria. So it was obviously a lot of information about the institution, the company itself, and what makes them so unique and specialized and complex um, in the industry. Um, and then they actually also had, it's hard for me, normally when I'm at a presentation, I might highlight um, on this slide, but they, you know, they really tried to argue here, and you can read through it when you have more time, because we're kind of a little short on time today, some, some arguments. But the key to all of this is that, you know, they printed out a lot of information on the ONET of biological scientists, all other, and in particular, the subcategory of bioinformation scientists. They highlighted the summary report of all the tasks, how it's related to the job duties, that it was the proper category essentially to select. Um, and then they mapped the coursework of a computational biologist um, to the actual knowledge and skills required in the ONET. So they sort of did a map. And I have a sample job chart a little later on in the presentation where you can see how that sort of maps out how the coursework prepared them for the specific job duties. Um, and then, of course, an expanded job description, because they're never happy with your five to ten bullet points. They want like five to ten pages, it seems like, these days. So um, they also included uh, expert letters. And in this particular case, they drafted them themselves instead of paying like a trust for or some sort of uh, vendor to do it. And uh, I actually, again, as some of the sample materials that I'm providing are sample expert opinion letters. 
Um, to be honest, when we had a little bit more free time, uh, we would offer that service to clients because we had so many samples and we would help draft them and then they would just get an old professor or another colleague in the field as an expert. But we don't have time anymore. So to be honest, at this point now, we offer them, you know, the cert if they want to pay a vendor, uh, and they're expensive these days, anywhere from $500 to $2,000, depending on how, how fast you need them. But I do recommend if you do do an expert opinion later, uh, expert opinion letter that um, you make sure that they do some sort of interview, even if it's a phone interview, because officers are now dinging uh, in putting in denials. Well, we don't accept the letter because how could they have possibly uh, figured out that this was a specialty occupation job based on just the job description and the letter you gave them? They didn't do an in-person, you know, a, an interview. Now, I've seen even it take them take a further step and say, well, it wasn't in person. They should have gone to the company and spent hours and, you know, walking around, talking to the manager, talking to the foreign national. That's unrealistic. So I'm not saying an expert, expert opinion letter is going to meet all of their crazy criteria, but at the very least, make sure that they do two things. And I'll explain a little later why. Um, it's based on a case called Matter of Karen but that they do a phone interview, so pay a few extra hundred dollars for it, in my recommendation, and that they cite an outside source. Um, and then it should rise to the level of meeting this matter of Karen uh, criteria, which I'll talk about a little later. So, um, you know, obviously, in, uh, you can see in this RFE response, I mean, it is insane, you know, they're up to 17 exhibits. Uh, but it has, you know, first they talk about the company and the uniqueness. Then they talk about uh, the job and the specific duties and expert opinion letters about how the coursework and the duties uh, sort of match up. And then the final was the beneficiary's qualifications, um, you know, from resumes. This particular person is obviously highly qualified, probably could have even qualified for an O if they really wanted to. Um, but they have Google scholar profiles and things like that. So they have a little extra uh, oomph to add to the fact that this is a specialized and complex job that maybe the average employer can't. Um, so this might be a little bit of an extreme example, but um, you know, take your time to sort of read through these when you have a little bit more time. So another analysis we wanted to do is more, instead of science, more of a staff position that a lot of you might come across. And you know, market research analyst seems to be a big one and we all know why. It's because uh, the wage is really low. So we all want to pigeonhole our, you know, business development individuals into market research analyst roles. In this particular one, they had a, it was sort of for a startup company. So there's only a handful of people there. This individual was kind of had their hands in a couple different uh, jobs or occupations. They sort of told the line between marketing and sales. So they became a marketing and sales specialist and they had a bachelor's in psychology. And the reason why we went with the marketing route was there was an argument to be made based on the OOH, the really you know crappy OOH data that we have that used a phrase that I decided to just sort of latch onto and it became the core of the entire H-1B petition and the RFB. And that's basically, if you read what it says in the OOH, market research analysts typically need a degree in market research, but they could also have fields of stats, math, computation or computer science, business administration, social sciences, communications. But then they talked about courses, courses in communication, social scientists, economics, or consumer behavior. 
is also important. So I just took that one little thing and I ran with it. And so decided um, to do it. Now, anecdotally, this individual is now going for a green card case and their job has changed a little bit. You know, they're not just doing marketing anymore. Now they're more a little bit more into how the organization works. So they're doing some HR functions and market research, but now we're doing a green card and probably an H amendment uh, when we get to that uh, under industrial psychologists. Um, so because that also kind of melds together, um, you know, obviously psychology, consumer behavior, um, along with, you know, organizing a company, whether it's from HR perspective, whether it's from um, branding perspective, on how consumers and individuals inside the organization sort of think from a psychological. So if market research analyst uh, doesn't work for you, just think about potentially industrial psychologists going forward. Um, Cause that's sort of a, I don't say if it's a newer category, but maybe they got their own SOC subcode in the last couple of years. So of course we got an RFP on it. And um, you know, just so you could see sort of exhibits of what were included, obviously a more detailed job description. And I talk about a job chart which I, I did a sort of a cut and paste example of a little later on. Uh, the beneficiary qualifications, transcripts, because in this job chart, I have the map exactly each job duty to a course or several courses they've taken, include the course description. And then of, of course we need their transcripts to prove that they took those courses. Um, and then we got an expert opinion letter from a professor that sort of, um, went through each one of their courses that they took and how it prepared them for their specific job duties. And that's actually a sample I give, but something that a foreign national can draft themselves if you give them a sample and have an old professor sign. So that's sort of a free, what I consider a freebie. If you give them a sample, it's no work for you. They do all the work. Maybe you read it once just to edit, just to make sure, uh, but they don't have to pay for it, obviously. So, and you know, for nationals, the employees are more than happy to put the work in if, if their life depends on it. So um, that is a big one that we do these days. If we think that the coursework, we really kind of wanted to map it out, um, prepared them for this job, and maybe an opinion of why, we, you know, this degree program, you know, is perfect for this particular job. Um, it was no work and it's something, um, you know, that gives, gave us a second expert opinion because the employer did actually pay for another opinion letter from one of our vendors. And then we had two. Um, and the person had firsthand knowledge of the individual being an old professor. So, um, and sort of could say that they interviewed the individual because they spoke on the phone about it. And so, um, and then they cited some outside sources. So that was a good way to meet matter of care and standards for that expert opinion letter. But again, here's a list of more evidence, the summary report for the ONET. Um, the position is so complex or unique. Again, this is where you can see in exhibits five through 10 that we talk more about the company here. What is so unique, because since we're not gonna say that it's, you know, it's common to the industry, I, I have a hard time proving that one these days, just because in all the, I like to read RFEs that Ayla puts online and uh, denials, really the uh, final denials that Ayla puts online. And I see them ding that a lot, uh, the common to the industry one. So as you can see, this was all more about the, the company. What makes the company unique, uh, thus making that particular market research analyst job unique? 
So that is um, exhibits five through 10. Then we get into the nature of the specific job duties are so specialized and complex. Again, that's normally we use an expert opinion letter for that one, to be honest. Um, and we refer back to that job chart um, that, we, that we included at the very beginning of the petition. Um, the employer normally requires a bachelor's degree for the position. If we do do that, it's an org chart. But to be honest, we told them this was, it's a startup company. It's the first time they've ever had a market research analyst. So uh, there wasn't much to include in there. And then we had some additional evidence to, you know, that kind of fit in um, at the end, some sort of work product, essentially, uh, proving that the job was so, the duties are so specialized and complex, we want to give them work product. Well, you know, what did, what were the tasks that they performed that, you know, make it show that it, they were specialized um, and, um, and complex to, for, you know, so we give work product for that, for the, that the individual created. Okay, so now that we've sort of done two walkthrough analysis, I want to sort of, you know, it, I don't want to say it'll be a repeat, but walk through sort of top 10, the top 10 tips. And this starts from the very beginning of the case. So the very first thing I do, as I've mentioned, is I, I, I almost work backwards these days. I used to pick the, pick the SOC category first. I'd go to the ONET, pick the SOC, and this, that was it. Now I almost look at the degree first. You know, when it's kind of a tricky H1B, I'm going to have to eventually prove that the degree fits the position. Because let's be all honest, when an employer comes to you and they give you a job description, very few of them, um, I don't say very few, uh, maybe half of them these days, actually have on there what they want the degree to be. Because in this sort of multidisciplinary world, employers sometimes don't even care what the degree field is. I mean, it is. If it's a very technical job, you know, they obviously want a computer scientist, they want a computer science degree. But if it's in sort of like a business development, marketing, sales, um, you know, product development, product or project manager, sometimes they honestly don't care that much what the degree is in. And I'll have conversations with them. I'll be like, well, you know, we like to cast a wide net and see who, who applies. And we're open to anything. And for us, sometimes it's more on what was their prior work experience? What have they done in their career? And we base hiring off that which makes our job really difficult because, you know, so, so, you know, I, sometimes we have to, I don't want to say tell them what their minimum requirements are, but sort of, you know, analyze what their options are and lay it out for them and say, okay, would you accept someone with these degree fields? You know, is this something what you're looking for? So I look at what the foreign national has. That's the very first thing I want to see is I want to see their degree. But to be honest, I want to see their transcripts. Because especially this day with master's degrees, they take like six courses. And I got to see what those, you know, if I'm going to base my whole RFE off six courses, I have to see what they are. Um, or I, there's a local university here in Boston who loves to give what I would think employers love for degrees, but I just despise. It's like degrees in entrepreneurship, <laughs> degrees in, you know, um, Oh, I wish I could remember. I meant to write them down. The big one was like entrepreneurship or startup management or something like that. And you think, oh my gosh, that's never going to be listed in an OOH. Um, but I'm, you know, in the real world, it probably is a wonderful degree. And they probably did a lot of research on how employers want to see that. But from an age perspective, it makes you cringe. So, um, so, so 
the very first thing when I ask is I want to see the degree plus the transcript. So get those to me first because I need to see the courses. Um, so the next thing is, is then I go to the OH. What is the OH? You know, I pick an SOC code or I pick one or two and then I go to the OH and I see exactly what it says. And um, one little tip on there is think about if nothing seems to be working, this puzzle piece that you're putting together, think about getting a degree and work experience combo evaluation. Now, this is not going to work on a lot of CAP cases. I'm going to tell you right there because a lot of CAP cases, people are coming straight out of the degree program. But if someone comes to you, it's a port case or maybe they were working, um, you know, on STEM OPT for a really long time, you know, they have three years of STEM OPT and they're coming to you uh, now for a CAP case. Maybe they've been doing, they have a degree in um, psychology, but they've been doing business administration for the last three years on their STEM OPT. Maybe you can find a vendor out there who will do, you know, uh, a combo degree work experience and give you a major or a minor or a dual degree. Uh, so really look at that. Just, just keep that in mind because we've done it on a few cases, um, sometimes from the start, but sometimes at an RFE stage. But, you know, it can be difficult to change a requirement at an RFE stage. So just think about it. If they have enough work experience talking to one of your vendors and seeing if you could come up with a new degree, combo degree, that, that fits better or matches better. Uh, play with the job title. Some companies are really, really set on what their job titles are. They have a very large institution and they cannot, you know, wiggle with it. Uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of employers these days are smaller startups. Uh, they're willing to play with what the actual job description and job title is. So, you know, we actually, um, an, an example of my colleague who did this presentation before, their institution, as we mentioned, had, um, decided to do an institutional-wide job change. So they, as you saw, were doing computational biologists for years. And they kept, so they started to get more and more RFEs on that because most of the people didn't have degrees in biology. It was chemistry or physics um, uh, or computational mathematics or something like that, statistics. So they decided, well, okay, let's take biology out of it. Let's not confuse the immigration officers because they have a high foreign national population. So they decided to take the word biology out of it and they changed from computational biologist to computational scientist or associate. Um, so, you know, that would more be in line with, you know, be an easier argument. It sort of leaves open-ended. It doesn't give the immigration officer like a, a predisposed field you know, requirement just by reading the job title. So that's my next thing is sort of get, think about it. Also, for those of you who are really beginner and entry level, the ONET at the very top gives you sample job titles. So if you see a job title and it says like sales specialist, you're like, oh girl, we can't use that. Look at the samples. Those are samples that other, you know, um, others might be using. You can give those samples to the employer and say, hey, would any of these be you know, workable or, or usable um, for you. So just an idea for the really beginners. So then the next one is, it is expand and match the job duties to the ONET tasks. The number one RFE request, I feel like, they just put it in there. I feel like it's just boilerplate, is your job description isn't detailed enough. I mean, and sometimes I've gone in with a two-page job description and they have still said it's not detailed enough, which is ridiculous. But if you're only going in with like five bullet points, 
just be prepared for that. And especially if you're going to pick an SOC code that, you know, you're getting a little creative and you're going to pick an SOC code um, that you really want immigration to accept and your job duties hit on a few of them. Well, a lot of times employers, you know, they just make short job descriptions to go in an ad posting and they don't really get into that much detail, but there are a lot more duties and tasks. So what I'll do is two things. One, if I know the SOC code I want, I just send them that one. And I say, highlight the ones that apply to you. And then I infuse them in my job description. I don't use it word for word, but I sort of take them, add it to the job description and get the employer's approval to say, is this really what they're doing? Can we add these and expand the job? And then they say yes. And then that will also come in helpful later when you go to do this job chart potentially for an RFE. And in many cases now, I do it at the initial filing. And I'll explain why in a few minutes. Um, so that's the first thing. Another thing that I do a lot is I send them two or three SOCs. If we can't pick which one, and I will say, highlight all the tasks that apply. And if they highlight three and one, 10 and the other, you know, seven and one, maybe I go with the one that will have the most argument, the one that's 10, you know, that they highlighted 10 of the tasks to. Um, and sometimes the employer comes back and highlights four of every single one. And I think, oh, that, well, that's not helpful. But it, you know, it is what it is. So just think about using that. You'll be able to use it in two spots. One, to expand the job description, and two, uh, for a job chart which I think might actually be my next screen. So this is a sample job chart um, where <clears throat> the first column is the detailed explanation of the job duties. Um, and sometimes they're even longer than that. I, I just picked one real quick to, to add today. Uh, but, you know, and I only did the first page. Sometimes these job charts end up being five, seven pages long, but I send them a sample and I say, fill it out. And the only column sometimes that I have to fill out is the second one where I match their job duty to the SOC tasks. And I really try to make sure that each job duty has a corresponding one. And some are a, a bit of a stretch, but you know, they, they match somehow. Then the percentage of time spent on the job duty, the minimum education requirement. And to be honest, it's just the same thing repeated over and over and over. But it drills it home that every, every one of those tasks that they're doing is a specialty occupation task that requires a bachelor's degree in a specific field. Um, the course is taken, the four national fits that fills that out, and justification for why a bachelor's degree is required. So in that case, you know, maybe a sentence or two paragraph. Again, this is a chart that I send to the foreign national and they fill it out or the manager, but usually it's the foreign national. And, and sometimes I actually put this in the original petition filing, not a lot more extra time. Again, we have to fill out one column, the matching of the SOC code. Um, sometimes I can do that in 10 or 15 minutes. So it's minimal work to, to be able to potentially avoid an RFE. Um, I don't want to give them everything up front because sometimes they just ding for RFEs no matter what. and I got to hold some stuff back. But what I can then do if we do get an RFE is I can take this information and repackage it into paragraph form and either put it into an employer support letter that they sign and you just rework it. You know, you can, you know, it's all the same information, but you put it in sort of a different format and include it as an exhibit and they think it's something new and novel when really it's just a recitation of this chart in a different way. But this is one thing that sometimes I do now from the start on really tricky ones. Uh, and honestly, I think it helps in some of my cases. Um, 
where I get a approval, I'm like, whoa, I wish I had said they would tell me if, it, if that was the deciding factor for them. But, um, but consider that if you want to beef up your, your petition one way, that could be a way to do it. Um, so then my next tip is pick your poison. Decide up front which of the four specialty occupation uh, requirements, or sorry, criteria that you're going to prove. And I never really used to, back in the day, specifically tell them in the initial petition which one I'm proving. You know, we all had buzz language in our letters, and some of us still may do that say, oh, the job is so specialized and complex. Um, it can only require, you know, it can only be done from someone who's attained a bachelor's degree in X field. So we put the buzzwords in there, but we never laid it out in crayon for these officers of exactly what were the four that we were going to uh, proof. And now I now I do it. I was like, you know, we believe this position's pe this uh, petition meets the following four criteria. And, you know, and we just lay it out for them in the initial one. So if they've got their little checklist at their desk uh, or right now their home office uh, and they have to prove it, they don't even have to think for a second which one. Now, I don't do this, you know, sometimes, um, you know, I, I even do it when the OH supports us and it's a very boilerplate software developer. But I really, uh, the key to um, it would be for the really quirky ones, you know, where I just lay it out. So if they've got a checklist, you know, I just, um, yeah, I, I do that and I do a job chart. And that gives them really something to hang their hat on other than the basic H's that we used to be filing, you know, three, five years ago, um, where we sort of gave it to them to, to just assume it was a specialty occupation and which of the four criteria. I just can't leave it up to them anymore. Um, so that's sort of my next tip. Just pick your poison up front. And so then that leads to, we sort of chat about this, to document up front or not. And you'll, every person you talk to will have a different opinion. And to be honest, I flip-flop on this all the time. Um, probably drives my paralegal nuts. But expert opinion letters. I've heard some employer or some attorneys actually include them from the start now. To be honest, I sort of like to have that as be my smoking gun at an RFE stage. And I don't have the time or energy or really want the, for the company spending the money up front just yet. So I haven't started including expert opinion letters up front yet. Um, but on the list of suggestions, uh, job chart. I have, in some cases, my really difficult ones. I do send that off um, while we're drafting everything, let the foreign national work on it, give them a week to do it, and include it. Um, uh, a letter from the manager, you know, really going into why the job is specialized, unique, or complex. I haven't really started to include that yet, but I know some who have. Course descriptions. Again, that backs up your job chart. Um, I haven't started to include that yet in my initial filings. Uh, I like to then use it, have it as a piece of an exhibit or evidence later. I mean, they, we talk about it in the job chart and we give them the transcripts that notes it, but the additional evidence of the actual course description that the foreign national prints online for us um, or off you know, the, the university's website, so far I've held that back for an RV. An org chart. Um, to be honest, I really only include org charts if I'm trying to prove that it's a standard requirement at the company. Um, but every once in a while, to be honest, I've even included it when I want to show it's a, you know, it's a smaller startup. This is the first position we've had, but we'll definitely require this, have this as a job requirement going forward. Um, work product. I don't really include that at the initial filing 
I save that for the RFE. Um, department research list, grants, grant funding, patents. Those are all helpful maybe to prove that it's a unique or specialized or complex job. To be honest, I've been saving those for RFEs, but those are just potential options if you really want to beef up your case from the start. Um, again, oops, sorry, I scrolled too fast. Again, I always, for very new um, practitioners, I always warn never include a resume, ever. I don't even include it in an RFE stage. The reason is, is foreign nationals sort of like to, you know, beef up what they've done in the past. And they may say that they did, they were doing an internship or a job that they did not have CPT for, um, pre-completion OPT, whatever it is. And I don't want to accidentally include something where there's no proof that they had work authorization during that time. And it doesn't really add that much. I don't see how it adds value. So I just never include a resume. Um, so my next one, don't trust the officer to find it in your petition. Um, I have the very standard probably um, divider sheets. I don't use exhibit tabs for my H's, but like colored sheets of paper that really highlight what is below. I mean, I, it's back in the day, I feel like, you know, we might have just sent it all in and let them sift through it. But if I'm going to go through the effort of giving them a few extra materials, like a job chart or the ONET tasks um, that highlighted that match the task that we do with the job chart, the OH summary, um, uniqueness, anything, if we're going to send them anything extra. Um, I now at least put a colored sheet of paper that highlights what it is, you know, or maybe even which criteria we're trying to prove. Like if we say we're going to prove these two criteria and we want to give them a few little extra things that from the front, really make sure it doesn't get lost with all the company documents or something like that, like the what company website you print out. So this one, I wasn't sure if I want to include or not, but I decided to add it up. Level up if justified. And when I say level up, I mean the wage level. And I don't, I'm not one who touts wage uh, leveling up on every wage level I, or on every single H1B if you can. Um, if it's truly an entry level position, you know, don't because the, but for those who are either new to the practice or those who aren't, you'll remember two years ago, we saw a massive influx of uh, wage level RFEs. But I feel like those are significantly down. I maybe get one a year randomly. And uh, we have a very standard RFE response. I mean, it's long, but we, we got so many in like one summer that we now have this standard response. And Ayla was very helpful in helping everyone sort of unify our response that I, I almost feel like we were all sending in similar arguments that it helped us, helped immigration be like, let's forget it. We're not going to. Um, but you know, I have seen them come through about once a year. We still get them in our office. And if you're really gonna, it shouldn't hurt you, but if you really are gonna start to um, argue that the job is really specialized and really complex and they're doing all these uh, job duties and tasks that may not be listed in the OH, if you're at a level one wage, they could potentially use it against you. So again, just analyze. If you are arguing that they're doing things that are highly complex and, and unusual and unique for that particular role, and they do make a level two wage, talk to the employer of saying, is this truly entry level or did you really want someone with a bachelor's and a couple years of experience? So um, don't just level up to do it, but keep in mind, especially if you're you know new to this, that 
sometimes they use that against you, uh, the level one wage. So use the OH against immigration. We're kind of running out of time, so you may have to read a little bit more of this. Uh, I'm just going to kind of skim, but the OOH has, I put this in my RFU responses now, has disclaimers that actually says, um, you know, the language in the OH itself can be helpful in, um, you know, countering RFEs. So um, they actually have the disclaimer below and I highlighted it. It says the OOH is not intended to or should never be used for any legal purpose. I print that out, I highlight it, and I put that quote in my RFE responses to sort of show immigration when they start quoting the OH and saying, well, this is what the OH says, you can't possibly be a specialty occupation, you can use it against them. Uh, the OH also notes, um, education requirements for occupations may change over time and often vary by employer or state. Therefore, the information in the OH should not be used to determine if an applicant is qualified to enter a specific job in an occupation. I quote it, I put it in my RFE response. So um, take this language and use it. My, oh, tip number nine, scare them with case law. Uh, I actually scare them a little bit in some of my really tricky cases with case law up front, but for the most part, it, it happens at an RFE stage. And it happens in the first criteria, that it is standard in the occupation. So that if the OH says has bad information, and when I say bad, five degree fields, or no information at all, this is where I put all of my case law, really, is in my argument that it's just it's standard in the occupation. Um, so we really don't have time to go through and read all of this. So take your time. It's several um, PowerPoint pages long. But I also, in my samples that the BBA, BBA is going to share, I give you a couple, a couple pages of my typical RFE responses where I cite some of these cases so you can see how I've actually used to it and cited to it. Um, but these are all great case law to use um, in trying to show that, you know, like for marketing, the Raj and company um, versus USCIS. I use this a lot, especially from our market research analysts, um, that says, um, you know, immigration abuses discretion in relying on the OH to determine that a baccalaureate is higher. Um, so just read through this. I really wish I could spend more time on it, but we're just running out of time. Um, and then also, as a reminder at the RFE stage, uh, remind them of the preponderance of evidence standard and put in um, the case that, that supports it. I will butcher the name, matter of Shalwith. I'm not really sure how you pronounce it, but make sure you put that in your RFE responses because you just have to prove that it's more likely than not an H-1B, not it is absolutely a specialty occupation, just more likely than not. Um, so this is actually a sample. This is cut and pasted from my RFE responses. Uh, where I remind them of the standard of review. So in the preponderance of evidence standard. So again, steal it if you wish, uh, or use it and edit it. My final tip is cite outside sources. Immigration loves outside sources. So it's not your opinion. It's not an expert opinion that you paid for. It's not the employer's opinion. Um, so here are just some sample websites that we've gone to where we're trying to prove uh, that, they're, uh, that a degree requirement is maybe standard for the occupation. Um, so I want to say that I've actually used Career One Stop 
and USA jobs um, in, in a couple of my RFE responses. Um, and so here is a list of some sample documents that the BBA is going to send. An initial support letter outlining the specialty occupation criteria, uh, just to sort of kind of boilerplate language that you could now start infusing to sort of remind them of the criteria and which ones you're going to approve. A job chart, um, an excerpt from an RFE response memo where I actually uh, cite case law, uh, and then two expert opinion letter samples that I actually send to foreign nationals. These are on, all in PDF, but if you've got some Adobe, you can change them into Word, um, where I send it to them the samples. And you know, sometimes they can avoid spending thousands of dollars on expert opinion letters. I thought I had in here, and I hate to do this where I'm scrolling through really quickly through sides, so I really apologize. So turn away for a second where when I talk about an RFE, oh, here it is, whether to document up front, I, I, I put it in the slide, but I also meant to put it in the citing case law slide, but expert opinion letters. Be sure to cite matter of Karen International um, because immigration will use this against you sometimes if you don't. I actually put this, this, please note that the enclosed expert opinion letter should be given full weight and credit based on the following reasons, and there's three bullet points. I put that in my RFE response below every expert opinion letter I include. So if it's just one, one, if I include two, literally under each one, because it says the outside opinion is based on objective standards citing to specific research. So that's why I make sure all my expert opinions at least find one source that they could cite. And then I quote that in when I'm pulling out quotes for my RFE. The opinion is based on specific concrete aspects of the employer's business operations. So that's what they'll use against you if you don't do some sort of interview. And then the opinion is in accord with other information provided. So, um, so if you, I always cite that and put it right in my RFE responses for every expert opinion letter that I include. And knock on wood, it seems to be working. So that's sort of, I tried to truncate what normally I do an hour and a half presentation into an hour um, and see, I'm gonna check the Q&A. There's two questions. Um, so the first one says, when you have an employee who has a degree in a field not listed in the OOH for the job, but the employee has taken courses that are relevant to the specialized nature of the position, do you go forward with that SOC code and do a course duty chart? Now, I don't know when you asked that question, which in part of the presentation, but yes. So that's where I do that job chart and I map it out for them and I make it very clear. Um, so like this particular the market research analyst with a degree in psychology. She had a lot of consumer behavior courses. Um, she had, um, I wish I had her transcripts. I almost should have throw, thrown it in there so you can see, but we, um, I think you followed, I think you answered the question, but we do. We really go through uh, a lot of the courses and uh, that's why I really love the course descriptions. Sometimes the course descriptions, when you read them, give you really good ideas to infuse into your RFE response um, that says, you know, this course taught them how to do X, Y, Z. And you'll notice one of our sample expert opinion letters is from a professor who does that. They go through each course and map, take the language of the course description and say how it would have prepared them to perform this job duty, you know, job duty number two or three. So um, that's, you know, I find that job chart really helpful, even for immigration. Sometimes they don't, can't wrap their head around pages and pages of paragraphs of information. They get lost, they get bored reading it. But this chart sort of makes it succinct and sort of matches everything up for them. So I really recommend a, a job chart like that.
So I think <laughs> uh, there's no more questions in the Q&A. Oh, um, let's see. Um, let's see, another question. How do you handle a management analyst job title for a person with a master's in economics? So the management analysts, gotta love them. I, sometimes what I do for job titles is, especially where an employer doesn't want to change the title or does want to call them a management analyst, um, I use brackets a lot. Um, I even do, uh, you know, I do it and sometimes I even match it, even for my scientists where it's like a vague research scientist and then I'll bracket chemistry, you know, professor, assistant professor, you know, business, so that the job description might be vague, but in the bracket, it really matches to what their degree is. So, you know, if I, sometimes for a management analyst, I'll come back and maybe call them, um, uh, I don't know, uh, it's hard to say like a, sometimes just a straight, you know, management um, economics, it could be management, um, so I might even play with the entire job title on that one, but um, economic analyst, sometimes I fuse them together and use the degree and part of it, part of the job description. Um, economics analyst, uh, business and economics analyst, you know, something like that. But I use brackets a lot, or I see, and the employer sometimes is, even likes it. If they don't want to change the main title, but they're okay with adding that sort of sub, uh, title that works a lot too. So I also included my email on the very first slide, uh, walsh at iandoli.com. And um, I'm more than happy to engage in some, you know, if you're working through an H-1B and you have an idea, you just want to bounce an idea off another immigration attorney and you're sitting at home <laughs> and you're a solo practitioner or you're just home and you don't have access to your colleagues, shoot me an email. I'm more than happy. Um, I love working with the BBA. I love, um, I'm the co-chair of the immigration section uh, this year and next year. And so I love having that feedback and I like to hear how others do it because sometimes our office even starts to do it the same way over and over. I like to hear how other offices are doing it or analysis. So please feel free to email me anytime to bounce ideas. So I think <laughs> that wraps it all up. I hope you guys <clears throat> can take away some of the sample documents, use them in your own or uh, steal some language or um, see just how others are crafting their ideas. And I thank you for joining us from home. Um, I hope you're all saying sane out there and God bless any of the other parents out there who are also teaching at the same time. You're trying to wrap your head around H-1B petitions. Um, so good luck with everyone.